One of the most difficult things for any of us to do is change. Change causes anxiety, it's uncertainty, there's stress, and really we're not very good with any of those, but help is on the way. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And on today's program, we're going to talk with a nationally known expert in behavioral health about coping with change, including how to make the transition from pandemic isolation to reintegration back into a much more normal lifestyle. You know, Bill, any conversation about change is really, really important. I I look forward to that because sometimes, you know, it feels like we'd all be just a lot safer if we could somehow live inside of a bubble. Well, guess what? We've got a fascinating conversation with a Miami area photographer who has received national attention for his series of photos that depict exactly that. George Camper stopped by Growing Boulder headquarters and he brought his bubble with him. Find out what happens when creativity in times of challenge turns into inspiration. But first, how many times have you stood over your recycling bin wondering, can I recycle this? Well, you'd be surprised at what should and what shouldn't go into that bin. The real rules of recycling from one of the top eco-warriors in the nation are just ahead. We've got ordinary people. They're living extraordinary lives because that's growing bolder. Most of us really want to do the right thing, don't you think? We want to be liked. We want to help others. And we want to be responsible people. But sometimes even the simplest things can be confusing, like, say, okay, okay, here's an example. True confession time. I'm a lousy recycler. I don't want to be, but honestly, I don't get it. And if it's early in the morning on recycling day and I have to think about anything, either I'm going to do it wrong or I'm not going to do it at all. Anybody else? out there feel the same way? Well, we're going to clear that up right now, once and for all. So get ready for some clarity. She is no less than an unsung American hero who for over a decade has stepped into the fight. From helping create meaningful legislation to having a real understanding of how recycling actually works. In fact, she has an awesome new book out, which is as interesting as it is informative. It's called Can I Recycle This? A Guide to Better Recycling. Let's say hi to Jenny Romer. How are you, Jenny? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Listen, first of all, honestly, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your passion, for getting it, and for being able to and taking the time to explain all this to us. We're hooked. You know, we're addicted. We've got to find mm-hmm. a way to kick the habit, that plastic habit. And people people laugh or they sigh or they go, hey, that's that's great but it really is killing us. What What is the problem with plastic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, one big thing with plastics and recycling is that people really have a, feel good about putting things into their recycling bin. It's kind of like they didn't use them in the first place, a lot of people feel. Um, and that warm, fuzzy feeling we get is, is not by accident. Uh, the plastics industry has spent millions of dollars on marketing recycling as the answer, um, for decades. And so it's not surprising that that people feel this way. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of plastic that is produced isn't actually recyclable. So, you know, plastic is made out is means a lot of different things. There are 
there are six main different types of resins. Some of them are more recyclable than others. Those are kind of the recycle the chasing arrow codes in the bottom of your plastic packages. Those little a little triangle with a number in the middle. That's a resin code. Um, and the ones in the twos that are bottles and can bottles and jugs are really the most recyclable plastic that we have right now. But a lot of the other stuff like the party cups, those red cups that people buy for parties um, that have a number six at the bottom, those really are not being recycled at all in the U.S. Um, so I really want to educate people with my book about kind of what is recyclable, what isn't, um, and really focusing on reducing the stuff that isn't recyclable as much as possible. And, you know, in your book, from the very beginning, it's almost like a table of contents of lists of items that, you know, we, we would use all the time, things like uh, uh, plastic carryout bags, straws, paper coffee cups, things, glass beer bottles, things that we throw in the recycling bin all the time. And, and, and it is stunning to see what, what you have red dots next to, things that we mm-hmm. think are recyclable that really are not. What, what gives? Yeah. So right now, the plastics or the the manufacturing uh, manufacturers of packaging really have no responsibility for what happens after products leave their hands. So when you you know buy a bag of chips or a, a soda bottle, um, it ends up being the municipality, so your local government or the ratepayer who pays for the recycling and the waste disposal. And so manufacturers are really just using kind of what whatever is the least expensive thing and not not really worrying about the recycling part. And so that really just leaves a bunch of really low value garbage um, that ends up at a lot of local recycling facilities. And so now we're starting to just see some pushback on that saying, hey, this isn't fair. Um, and pushing for laws, they're called uh, EPR laws for packaging, extended producer responsibility. We already have them for things like paint and batteries. So seeing that for something just like all the, the packaging that we see on, on store shelves. Um, so I think that's really going to be a, a huge change from right now it all being at the munis- municipality and having it, having them have to deal with it. Um, but my number one take home is really to follow your local jurisdiction's rules. So, you know, your government facility has decided what machinery you know, they have, what kind of staffing they have, um, what kind of markets they have um, for selling that material. And so, you know, they will have a list probably on their website or maybe you might get it in the mail um, that says exactly what they want. So follow that and don't wish cycle. So don't give them other things that um, you think should be recyclable. If that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's so confusing. And that's part of, of what you do so well is that you kind of clear this up for all of us. And then you mentioned the triangle with the numbers in it. There are numbers in the, that's how close <laughs> I look. There are numbers in the, I thought if the triangle was there that it was recyclable, but what do the, what do the numbers mean? So those are resin identification codes. Uh, and so there are numbers one through six are different types of plastic resins. And then number seven, it just means other. Um, and so those resins, are, you know, plastic is a bunch of different things and, and different types of resins um, are have, uh, have, have capabilities. Like some can withstand heat better than others. Some are harder than others. Um, and so the most expensive ones are meaning 
what how it's what sells for the most money, what on the commodities market, what manufacturers want to buy are number one, number two. So those are um, number one tend to be water bottles. And uh, number two are things like plastic milk jugs and shampoo bottles. Those will sell for the most on the commodities market. And um, I, according to my research, uh, those sell for the milk jugs sell for about a thousand dollars a ton on the commodities market right now. And then kind of the other stuff are the other numbers. So number three through seven, those are really low value. Nobody really wants to buy them consistently. And so they sell for about negative $17 a ton. So that means that the your, your recycling center is probably having to pay for those to go to landfill or, or incinerated. And so rather than just what, what you can put in your bin, um, my book really looks at, because I, because that can, you know, your jurisdiction might accept something slightly different. So follow your local rules, but I try to walk people through what happens next. So what happens next is, um, is once it's collected, is it sorted, uh, effectively into bales? And then are those bales kind of like hay bales? Are those going to be sold on the commodities market to a manufacturer will turn it into something else. And so I try to walk people through the, that three-step process to determine, is this really being recycled into, into a new product? I, I look at, uh, looking on your list here, plas- uh, like glass beer bottles are, have, have a yellow dot next to them. You would think that would be like the most recyclable of all. Mm-hmm. Glass is great. Uh, and, you know, I, I like it because we're really, you don't have to be concerned with kind of chemicals that are being added as liners and stuff because glass is inert. But glass does have an issue in that it's super heavy and it and it breaks. So if you are, if you're recycling glass, you need to be near a glass recycling facility and, or bottler. And so there are some places that aren't close enough to bottlers to really make it make sense for the hauling. Um, and so glass, you know, I I had to kind of invent a special category for it just to kind of have that, that warning that there are some issues with glass, but generally glass is great. And milk jugs are recyclable, but milk cartons are much more difficult. Yeah, and so I have a special category for milk cartons as well, because uh, people, I think, are at the store and they see a milk carton versus jug, and a lot of people think, oh, great, paper. (laughs) I like paper. Um, But unfortunately, that paper is lined on both sides with plastic, and some of it's even lined with a little bit of aluminum metal as well. And so that takes a lot more effort for, there are only certain um, mills that will accept it, to kind of pull those paper paper fibers out and then the rest of it's plastic and kind of just gets washed away um, and which isn't a very good thing. Um, So, you know, a lot of jurisdictions accept cartons, but uh, only the paper is going to actually be recycled and not every mill wants them. But milk jugs, the plastic milk jugs, that's one of the really high value plastics. So, you know, that's a little bit complicated one, but when I'm at the grocery store, I have all of these things happening in my head as far as making that calculation of, you know, should I buy the aluminum beer bottle or beer can or the glass bottle? And should I buy the milk jug or the carton? So I just want to get the, some of those things across to other people so that they can think of that calculus as well. It seems like with recycling and with pollution, that still 
too much of the responsibility is on the mm -hmm. consumer and, and the producers are still getting away with I'm just destroying the planet. Yeah, and only 9% of plastics ever produced have been recycled at this point. And, you know, that's not the consumer's fault. That's really, that's really with the manufacturers. And so, yeah, like you said, I think right now the manufacturers are getting away with a whole lot. They're kind of outsourcing all of that responsibility. Um, but we're seeing laws now. There are state laws that are looking at various ways to regulate it. There's the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act at the federal level that I've been working on pretty closely that really looks at plastic, the whole life cycle, but particularly looking at the stuff that's on store shelves. Um, because right now, consumers really don't have many choices to get their food and their household products without having to get all that extra packaging with it. So I really want to see, see us move towards having the producers be responsible for that recycling and waste disposal costs, but also really transitioning to a system where we have where we have access to real refill and reuse systems and, you know, like not just shopping at a co-op when you can for your granola and things like that, but really being able to go to a store and without having to get all the packaging, being able to get your favorite shampoos and cereals and all of that, which a lot of people can't do right now. Yeah, you'd think if the pressure was on, they'd come up may maybe with some other kind of container materials. Uh, but there, if there's no incentive, that's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. You have some staggering statistics in the book about how much plastic junk and garbage is in the ocean now. Mm -hmm. tell, tell us some of those, Jenny. And are we, are we already, I mean, just past the tipping point? Yeah, so 11 million, 11 million metric tons of plastic enter the ocean every year right now. And I'm an attorney with the Surfrider Foundation. That's my day job. And so I work, I look at plastic pollution from the lens of ocean protection. So from protecting the ocean from having additional plastic pour into it, uh, because there's so many issues with that, uh, not only with, with sea turtles and, and albatross, things like that. You know, albatross will see plastic bottle caps floating on the top of the ocean and and think that they're food, go and regurgitate them to their chicks, um, but also human health. So, you know, that all the pollutants that are that are in plastic, all those plasticizers really make their way up the food chain. Um, so, you know, I really concentrate on trying to have less plastic enter the ocean rather than kind of the cleanup side. Yeah, we, we've spent, what, a, just a few minutes with you. First, first time we've ever met you. And I'm sitting here thinking, what's wrong with us, Jenny? Should it, should it really be this difficult to do something that we all know we desperately need? It shouldn't be, but I would say that there's a whole lot of power in lobbying in this country. Um, and the chemical industry, the plastics industry, really have a stronghold in D.C. and in various state legislatures. So, you know, this should be really easy, but... I can tell you that it's been a fight. Um, I've been working on even local plastic bag policy I've been working on for 15 years. And there's so much really strategic pushback on that. Um, and then talking about, you know, moving beyond just talking about a single item, just really talking about packaging more generally. There's a lot of pushback. But I really want people to think about recycling as a commodities market. So... Know, it just makes sense that we'd want to use material that then will be resold and turned into something else. So we need to start off using higher value material in order to have recycling 
really work. And that doesn't mean that it'll cost very much for, for manufacturers. Usually the cost difference is, is very minimal, if anything. But just having that mindset that this material needs to be made into something else at the, at the other end uh, is something that we aren't doing yet in the U.S. So, you know, we, we know how the world works and nobody knows more about this topic than you. How do you how do you see this playing out? Is it going to take some kind of major crisis before we finally get our heads together and do something? Or do you have a little bit more optimism that maybe we'll be able to legislate this thing? I am surprisingly optimistic. Um, so I've, I think that the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, you know, at the federal level, if we can push that through. Uh, it has over 100 co-sponsors now, and you know it, we haven't had plastic reduction policy talked about in a real way at the federal level until last year. Uh, but I think if we see more states move forward, California and Washington and Vermont, and quite a few states have really already been pushing forward with plastic laws, even New York. Um, and if we see that, then I think that we have a, a real chance. Well, listen, we all we all should want to make a difference. We all should want to help you. I mean, listening to you has been has fired us up over here. So so what what can we do to take responsibility? What what can we do starting today that that you think will help make a meaningful difference and, and help you in this fight? I think there are two things that I talk about in my book. One is our personal solutions. So those are things like I say, bring your own everything. So bring your own bag bring your own water bottle, your own coffee cup, because unfortunately those aren't really recyclable. Um, and, and then, you know, that can also inspire other people to see that you're what you're doing um, and maybe do that themselves as well. And then that kind of normalizes those behaviors so that if there's some policy that's mentioned, people are, are more okay with it. Um, and then this next step is policy. So, you know, I'm a lawyer. I really, think the policy is the answer that it'll get us there a whole lot faster um, to real solutions. So supporting policies when they come up in your local governments, um, calling your legislators and just letting them know, hey, I support single-use plastic reduction policies. I support fixing recycling um, and and making sure that you know those voices are heard um, because your legislators hear a whole lot from lobbyists. Um, and not enough from their constituents who really care about these issues. But we talk all the time about the importance in life of, of making a difference and feeling like you're doing something to contribute to the betterment of, you know, your neighbors, your relatives, your friends, society in general. And Jenny, you're, you're doing amazing work. And so folks, if you're fired up and listening to this and you want to do your part to help, a good place to start is by picking up the book. And like I said, it really is. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's, it's, it's easy to thumb through. It's easy to read. Everything in there relates to you, your neighborhood, your, your recycling process, everything that we do now. It's called Can I Recycle This? A Guide to Better Recycling. You'll find it wherever books are sold. Our thanks for fighting the good fight to Jenny Romer. Up next, a national expert on behavioral health and how our mental health affects us physically, especially as we transition from COVID isolation to social reintegration. This is Growing Bolder. 
Support for Growing Boulder provided by Florida Blue Medicare. Turning 64 is a time to celebrate as new adventures and opportunities await. And 64 is also a time to think about Medicare. Growing Boulder created a guide that helps explain it all. Available for free at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. Well, ever noticed that when people ask about your health, you're most likely to think first about aches and pains and illness and disease, and almost never do we think about our mental health, how we feel, how we're dealing with stress and frustrations. Are we overwhelmed? Well, some healthcare companies do. In fact, one, Florida Blue has an entire department devoted to what they refer to as behavioral health. And our next guest is the vice president of that department. And what a fascinating person, compelling background. He's, he's a nationally known sports psychiatrist. He's considered a pioneer and an innovator in offering services and using technology. He, he's an expert on addiction medicine as well. And he helps break down those barriers that stand between us and success and happiness. So let's say hello to Dr. Nick Dewan. How are you, Dr. Nick? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Just when we think we've got this life thing figured out, there's always something unexpected to deal with that can set us back and throw everything off. I mean, it could even be something like a pandemic. I mean, for a year, we're shut down, isolated, going nowhere, then unexpectedly, when it was safe to stick our heads back out into life, we kind of discovered a whole new set of problems. And you've called it making the transition from isolation to integration. So what, what is that all about? Well, here we are. We have been through what I would call a state of an invisible, constant, unpredictable, and potentially deadly threat for a long time. And so for those that have gotten the vaccine, for those that are now able to come out of what I would call, for some people, has been solitary confinement, and to finally breathe air, or at least feel like you can breathe air without being in a panic situation. And so that transition, that sort of going from not only what I would call the, the sense of fear and anxiety, but for some people, that sense of you know, that grief, the sense of loss. And you're like, oh, I've climbed this mountain. I can see the sunshine. And now what do I do? Perhaps during this time, you've learned new things to enjoy. You've learned new things to love. That doesn't mean you stop those. It means now you have double the joy. You have stuff that you learned to enjoy when you were in isolation. And now you have stuff that you can go back to. So really, it's a chance to reinvent your life now that things are getting back to a different way. I don't use the word normal. I use the word integration, adaptation. It's a different world. Our inside world is different, and our outside world is different. So we have to wade in slowly. So that's how you kind of approach the situation. Well, uh, Dr. Dewan, you, you made... A great point there uh, and an interesting way of looking at it 
instead of like the challenges of how to reintegrate, uh, you look at it as the opportunities that we have to uh, either ask the question again, what do we want our life to be like, uh, moving back into a more normal situation rather than, gee, what are the challenges to get going? And I don't think anybody has... uh, really have more to change or more to think about than the older segment of the population. Because as you pointed out, isolation was in some cases severe. Uh, But nonetheless, we have a chance at a new beginning. We have a a chance to rethink some things. So could you talk a little bit about this in terms specifically of uh, older adults? Absolutely. I I think I would consider that group of individuals, the most courageous individuals, the most resilient, the boldest individuals, because they've suffered the most. And now it's a chance to sort of, you know, to humanly, to emotionally, to empathically connect with others, to hold that hand, to hug, to cry together, to see the smile on the son or daughter or niece or nephew or grandson or granddaughter, and to not only see them and experience them, but let them experience you. And I think that is just so important. It's, it's a bi-directional sort of uh, savoriness. It's a bi-direction empathy. It's a bi-direction sharing of what I would call positive emotions, of, of gratitude, of love, of compassion. And I think that's what this reconnection, I think it'll be more meaningful, more impactful for this group of individuals than any other group of individuals out there. Again, great point. I don't think anybody makes it to 60, 70, 80 or more without having learned how to deal with a lot of the things that life throws at us. So with that in mind, are there steps are there things we should be watching for or things thinking about or things to do to begin the reintegration process or to make it as simple as possible? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, let's go back to we've been in sort of this, uh, like I said, this continuous kind of fear environment. And it's exhaustion. It, it, you know, people are emotionally and physically exhausted. So as we go back, It's actually important to rest, not only rest the body, but have some rest of the mind. The mind has been going like on a a racetrack and people sometimes have felt like they're just not one car on a racetrack. They're like three, four cars on the racetrack. And it's important throughout the day to, let's say, go to that rest area and just rest the mind. Maybe it's every hour, maybe it's every two hours. Take a couple of breaths. Enjoy looking at the grass. Enjoy looking at the trees. But mental rest ongoing is important because we've been through a a constant marathon. The second thing is in addition to that rest is find that one thing. Find that one thing you didn't get to do and do a little bit of that. Do a little bit of that one thing you didn't get to do. And then add on something that you were doing. And when you combine that, your joy will be increased. That's the other thing people need to do. 
The other thing to look out for is, let's face it, this has been a very emotional time. And if you cry when you see somebody, it's okay. Those are tears of joy. Those are tears of just coming back to what I would call life as you love it. And those are going to be strong emotions. So people should watch out for, yeah, they might feel this sort of tear in their eye or this sudden sense of joy, this emotional sort of release. All of that is normal. All of that is okay. At the same time, healing, not having that reservoir is also okay. So like I said, different people have different reactions. I would not consider anything not normal. I would expect everything right now as that transition occurs. Isn't it true also, doctor, that one thing you can say about uh, people as we age or uh, is that we're not always the most open with our emotions and we're uncomfortable sitting around and talking about feelings because we didn't grow up in an era where mental health was a part of our overall health plan. So I think that comes into factor too, doesn't it? The fact that uh, we will look at ourselves and say, you know, rub some dirt on it and get back in the game and not even address the issues. There's a famous saying, there is no health without mental health. And when you say those words over and over again, that there really is no health without mental health. And let's face it, the pandemic has taught us that. It's taught us that our emotional health, our mental health is as important and drives our physical health. It drives our ability to eat right. It drives our ability to say exercise. It drives our ability to take care of ourselves. And so... What I suggest to people, if you're noticing, if you're noticing you're not functioning in your normal day-to-day life the way you would like to, or you're not experiencing what I would say the hope and the joy and the positive emotions, that's when you do an internal check-in. An internal check is, well, how am I feeling about my mental health? If I had to rate my mental well-being on a scale of 1 to 10, where would I be? That should give people a sense of maybe that's an easier way to talk about it. Mental well-being, mental wealth or mental wealth or mental health is what kind of reservoir do I have now and where would I like to go with that reservoir? Because that's going to impact everything I do in life. It's going to impact my physical health, my social health and even my spiritual health. So that's that's a way of getting over that stigma issue. Yeah, it's such a difficult uh, thing for for so many of us because you know if you if you fall down you can you can and say wow that really hurt you you still don't do anything till you look at the bruise so you've got something that's reinforcing that wow I guess this is serious so maybe then I'll go in. I, I, the good thing about Florida Blue Medicare they've always always thought that the mind and body go together but what we've learned now. The science tells us, the data tells us, that if you don't address mental health, physical health gets worse. And conversely, if we don't address physical health, mental health gets worse. You know, we can work out our bodies hoping for optimal physical health. Is there, uh, is there a, something like that that we can do for optimal mental health? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, taking care of your physical health 
is really important for mental health. So, of course, eat right. Of course, exercise. But then the things that make life pleasant, actually doing gentle breathing exercise calms the body, calms the mind, lowers your blood pressure, makes your heart work better, makes your immune system work better. Spending time with others enhances your emotional health. And so that's what's been so difficult with this last year and a half. We now get to spend time with other people. And finally, everyone has what I would call an inner, what I would call thought reflex when bad things happen. And one thing that's very important for individuals to understand is to take a look at when you're feeling down or when you're reacting in what I would call a with a difficult emotion, it's always important to understand where your thoughts come from. You had great success in, in getting into the minds of elite athletes and, and helping them get rid of the distractions and sharpen their mindsets. What have you learned from them that we can use that, for lack of a better term, makes champions of us all? What kind of things can we do to stay sharp, stay focused, and at our best, especially as we get older? Every one of them sets a goal. Every single one says, this is what I want to get done. And this is what I'm going to get worked towards. And by the way, we do that every day. Only we do boring things like, you know, I really got to clean that closet this weekend. Or, and instead of saying clean the whole closet, I'm just going to clean one quarter of it. And so that's the other thing athletes do. They don't think about the 150 things they need to achieve. They think about, I need to make a little progress in this area over the next three months or the next six months because I've got my five-year trajectory plotted out. You have to set the goal, and then you have to set little steps to get there And you have to celebrate doing those little steps. There are many people out there that don't celebrate little successes. And by not celebrating little successes, it's hard to motivate to do the next step. Folks, that's Dr. Nick Dewan, Vice President of Behavioral Health at Florida Blue. And for more information, just check out growingbolder.com slash Medicare. Up next, the Miami-based photographer who climbed into a bubble during the pandemic. We'll hear about the photos he took and the lessons he learned. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Alliance for Lifetime Income. Protected income from an annuity can help cover essential expenses in retirement, giving you the freedom to live the life you want. The right financial professional can show you how. Learn more at protectedincome.org. And by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. 
Statistics show that there's a pretty good chance we'll all end up having to take care of a family member. It's one of the most stressful things you can do, mostly because caregivers generally don't ask for help until they're way past the point of needing it. Annette Kelly, who was CEO of the Central and North Florida Alzheimer's Association, says reaching out is one of the most important things you can do. I think that connection can be really important because subliminally you learn how other people manage. You learn not only what they're doing that's laudable, but what they're doing that you would never do. You know, both sides. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't want to go there. And you also learn ways of inviting into your caregiving situation support. I've accommodated caregiver support groups for years, and it has always been so enlightening to see the connections happen that you would not have expected. You know, it's, it's just remarkable. I've learned so much myself from doing that. Yeah, it's that shared knowledge yeah. is where the power comes from. Yeah, and the share, sharing of dismay and helplessness that then puts us, the, the caregiver, in a position of filling up again. That bottoming out sort of experience, which people fear. I've heard so many people say, I don't want to go to a caregiver support group. I don't want to hear other people's problems. Well, it's really not that. <laughs> it's much more about hearing your own spoken a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Sharing what you've been dealing with and learning from what others have been through, not only will it result in a better experience for the person you're caring for, but it really can make all the difference for the caregiver, too. More insight and information at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. Well, you've heard the saying, it's all about perspective. And you've noticed that if you do change your perspective, how different things can look. Well, that's what George Camper does for a living. He's a commercial photographer who uses his visual creativity to help his clients display themselves in a different way. Boy, Mark, and talk about changing your perspective. When the pandemic shut things down, Camper turned his camera around to look at the life that we were all suddenly living virtually inside a bubble. So... That's what he created, a series of photos inside a bubble. In fact, he actually brought that bubble and his portfolio to Growing Boulder headquarters to pay a visit to Mark. Flipping through the pages of George Camper's portfolio is a look at the state of the art of commercial photography. Wow. Oh, look at that. That's almost eerie. A look at how his work has elevated brands around the world. But when the pandemic hit, camper shoots were canceled or postponed, and one of the world's greatest commercial photographers was stuck at home, looking for a way to express his creativity. Bubble Boy is here. <laughs> and it didn't take long to find it. Bubble Boy, welcome to Growing Boulder. Well, thank you. It's great to be here, Mark. How are you enduring the, the pandemic? I know you've been concerned. Well, you know, we have our bubble, so all of our travels have been, uh, you know, in the bubble. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. 
The fun began when George remembered that he just happened to have a six-foot clear plastic bubble sitting in a closet. I had purchased the bubble for a fashion shoot that I wanted to do in the future. I didn't have an actual uh, specific thing in mind, but as, I, as you go through life, you know, as a photographer, you say, well, that's kind of interesting. One day I'm going to use that. And uh, the pandemic hit, and everybody on the news kept saying, and the bubble, and about the bubble, and this bubble, and that bubble. And I thought, I, was like, I got a bubble. <laughs> Let's take the bubble out. The bubble came out and George went in. Working with his wife, Cheryl, they began a weekly series of highly staged and exquisitely executed photos whose original purpose was simply to amuse themselves during a difficult time. We started it out just because it was something to do and George was curious as to how it would feel being in there. And um, then it just kind of exploded. People were seeing it on Facebook and on Instagram and just going crazy over it. All these people were loving the bubble. So, so you know, we just kept going. And, it, and it, it, you know, one thing led to the next. And of course, you know, it was relatively easy to find um, material because every other day on the news, something else was happening. So we were able to, you know, sort of capitalize on that. For months, they shot only in and around their house. George shooting the photos from inside the bubble by remote control and Cheryl helping with art direction and posing when necessary. When the beach reopened, they celebrated with a beach bubble and eventually hit the streets to produce the critically acclaimed Banksy bubble. Growing Boulder put the campers on the cover of our magazine. They've been interviewed by media around the world and their Bubble Boy series honored with numerous awards. One day, the series will be just another page in an impressive body of work. Until then, it's been a great way to smile through tough times. You know, there are certain challenges that we all face, and if you challenge them with optimism instead of pessimism, you're definitely gonna get through much brighter. And you, I, I think that being healthy and creative, they go hand in hand. And hand in hand is how George and Cheryl Camper are not only getting through the pandemic, but life in general. And together with their creative and playful spirit, they're excited about what's next, whatever that might be. Every day I wake up, I aspire to be a better person and a better photographer, every day. You know, I, I, it's, I'm not done. I think there's so much more to go. I'm retrenching. I'm thinking this is like this next chapter is gonna be the best ever. Mark, it's whimsical fun and those photos, they're <laughs> incredible. But just like you pointed out in the story, when the country locked down, the campers had no work and they had a lot of reasons to worry. So what do you think it was? Did they just let their creativity take over? I think that's exactly it, Bill. I think a lot of us get locked down when, when things unexpected happen to us. And if we just allow ourselves to try to figure out how we can, in this case, amuse ourselves, that's really all he was trying to do. He was just trying to have fun and he was smart enough to realize that fun was turning into something meaningful, which was turning into something that made his brand bigger and better and really more popular than ever. And isn't it interesting that sometimes the toughest challenges force us to become our most creative? Amen. Change is not a problem. Change is the wave that we ride to success. So saddle up, folks. When we come back, saving for retirement and what's on Mark's mind. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by 
Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Hi, this is Amy Sweezy from Growing Boulder. When it comes to retirement planning, women face a variety of unique challenges that make a difficult process even more problematic. Take a recent study by the National Institute on Retirement Security, which found that women 65 or older are 80% more likely to be impoverished than a man of the same age. There are many reasons women start out behind the eight ball when it comes to retirement planning, but there are also steps we can take to help secure our financial futures. Here are some things to consider. Women tend to live longer than men, but accumulate less in retirement savings because we earn less during our careers. We're also more likely to interrupt our careers for family caregiving responsibilities. Only 14% of women frequently discuss saving, investing, and retirement planning with family and close friends, according to a recent survey. Women should consider working with a financial professional who can help establish a real financial plan for retirement. And because we live longer, it's even more important for women to discuss including a source of protected income from an annuity to help grow and protect our retirement. The Alliance for Lifetime Income is a nonprofit educational organization that believes no American should have to face the prospect of running out of money in retirement. For more information, protectedincome.org. They provide easy-to-understand information, tools, and guides, also stories of real-life Americans who found ways to protect their retirement and have the freedom to live life boldly. For Growing Bolder, I'm Amy Sweezy. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. All right, Mark, this is my favorite part of the program where we get to talk about issues or topics that, that are at the forefront. What's on my mind today, Bill, is jealousy. Um, and you, I'm I, honestly, and I feel bad about this, I, I'm jealous of you, uh, and I shouldn't be because uh, Well, you, can I guess why? Yeah, go ahead. Because I do a third of the work that you do around here. It, folks, you have no idea, honestly, how much effort, work, research, phone conversations, This is not meetings. what's on my mind, Bill. But I, I, I just want to say this since you sort of opened the door just slightly that you're amazing and what you're doing for aging for all of us. And it's not just to pat you on the back, but it's just so people know that we take this very seriously. And you can't rebrand something like aging without totally immersing yourself into it. And thank you for doing that for us. Well, thank you for saying that. And, uh, you know, right back at you in, in what I wanted to talk about in terms of jealousy, because I, I would really feel like it was an opportunity lost if it wasn't you who did it, because in truth, I know you did it better than I would have. And what I'm talking about is is interviewing Bobby Bowden. Uh, you know, I went to FSU. I, I went to every major bowl game that FSU played from 1989 until 
2000. I interviewed Bobby a hundred times. Uh, I was very, very fond of him. And when we decided to do a series with Bobby Bowden, Steve Spurrier, and Jimmy Johnston, uh, you ended up going to Tallahassee to interview Bobby. You did a brilliant interview with Bobby. Turns out to be the last media interview that was done by Bobby. Uh, it turns out to be something that his family will cherish forever, that not just FSU alumni like myself, um, but football fans everywhere, people that couldn't care less about football have benefited uh, from the interview that you did. So I, I just want to say thank you for that and, and get your reaction to what it was like after learning that he had passed away. I, I'm, I can't believe you brought this up because I was just thinking about this when we were recording uh, introductions for our Growing Boulder What's Next program as well, where we featured all three of the coaches uh, in the same program. And I was just grateful and glad that it was Growing Boulder that had the chance to do the final interview. Had it been a sports network, a, a, a school station in Tallahassee, the conversation would have been about football. It would have been about what glory years we had and how you built the program. But the growing bolder angle is so much more than that. And and it's whoever we get to interview, whoever we talk to, it, it, it just... It's about the essence of the person and what we can learn from them. So for me, I was just thrilled that it was growing bolder. You, you make a great point, Bill, but again, don't sell yourself short because you were able to extract things that were far more valuable than lessons about football. You got from him his lessons from life. You got from him the pathway to a life well lived, which he certainly did. So thank you for that. And, and, and folks, let's leave it there. That's what growing bolder is about, honest, heartfelt, conversation about important topics. We'll see you next time. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Every day.